Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the corn and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, people of Israel. And now we're reading from the New Testament, from Titus chapter 2, verse 11, to chapter 3, verse 8. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's great to share with you one final time as we just reflect on these words of scripture and what we're looking at today there will be nothing novel about them whatsoever but actually just a delightful reminder of grace and the way it transforms us and so these are 
verses that we've been reflecting on since the beginning of the year, uh, looking at the nature of grace and how it shapes our lives, how it helps us wait. And today, it's a bit of a summary, really, of the places that we've been in the last couple of weeks. But these are words which, in one sense, are great to leave with you, reminders, but also for us to take with us on our next steps as well. Because in them, these verses that we're looking at, particularly verses 11 to 14, which you'll see printed on page 8, are a real wonderful little summary of what the Christian message is. But not only that, what the Christian life looks like. So it's a a window into the world of someone who believes that they have been saved by the work of Jesus, but also how Jesus forms us to be a kind of people that follow him. And so... It's a great invitation for you if um, you don't know Christ as Lord and Saviour to to get a window into what it is Christians believe, the difference that Jesus makes in our lives as well. And in these verses is a life articulated to us. It's the good life. There are many visions of the good life that we are sold and as Sydney Siders, we have a good life here. Yet Jesus tells us that the good life looks different. What we'll see about Jesus' teaching is he always turns things upside down. But we're going to look at it through the lens of grace, which is the title of our talks. And grace is a word that we use as a name. Sometimes we think it is something that we say before a meal, and both of those things are true. But grace as a word means gift or generosity. Gift or generosity. And in the ancient world, the word grace would have been used of gift and generosity, but it would have brought up certain connotations for people in the ancient world. In the ancient world, gifts were granted to those who were worthy recipients. They might have been important or had status, and so a gift was given to someone because they had a worthy status of some kind. But when these verses are written, and indeed the message that Jesus came and preached, one of grace, the gospel turned these words on their head in the ancient world. God's gift of grace was for, we see in verse 11, all people, not just those who might be deemed worthy or have status, but actually for all people. And grace appeared, it says in verse 11, with the coming of our Saviour, that is Jesus So in the coming of Jesus is this gift of good news, grace, the gospel, that though people are undeserving, God gives them this wonderful free gift of relationship with him through his son's death and resurrection. And we see a little bit of that in chapter 3, verse 5. It says, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And this is what makes grace so amazing. God bestows on those that are unworthy this incredible gift of grace that we can have relationship, communion with the creator of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ, and his death and resurrection. It is a free gift, salvation for all people, that is, all kinds of people. But what we saw in the second week is that although this gift is given freely to all people, 
it doesn't mean that what we do doesn't matter. That would be to treat grace cheaply. Rather, grace brings about new expectations or habits, dispositions and practices. It transforms us. And our verse today ties all this together. We're looking at verse 14 in a tidy little package. But I'm going to do it under four headings, briefly, and we're just going to move through it and just rehearse some of these wonderful truths to one another and give us a window into something of what it is Christians believe in Christ. So firstly, the source of grace, this gift that was given. The necessity of grace presupposes something, this gift. Namely, that something is not right between us and God. If you read the Bible story, it begins with God interacting with the first humans, calling on them to lovingly express their, their trust of God in obedience. And yet from the very earliest pages of the Bible, we see that humanity in Adam and Eve, in these stories, turned from God, trusted in themselves rather than him, wanted the good things that God gave as gifts and not the giver of those gifts. They chose control over communion with God. And then throughout the pages of the Bible, we see that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And what we see in the Bible is that there is now isolation and separation from God because we have rejected him. And so the way the Bible speaks about that is of our former lives. I don't know if you noticed in chapter 3, verse 3, it spoke of what we once were. And this is speaking of humanity outside of Christ and relationship to him. It says, at one time, we too were foolish and disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now, it's, it's painted a pretty stark portrait there. It's a bit overwhelming to hear that. You might not describe yourself that way. It's not a pretty portrait. I prefer to paint myself in the best possible light. But it's trying to show us something, and I'll get to that in a moment. Last year, and I think actually in March this year, and I do recommend this to you, down at Walsh Bay, there is a theatre presentation of Oliver, uh, Oscar Wilde's short story, Dorian Gray. I don't know if you're familiar with the story at all, but Dorian Gray is about a gentleman who has a splendid portrait painted of himself by his friend, and this picture is true to the real Dorian Gray character. Charming, young, handsome and innocent. And he admires the painting, but he secretly wishes that he would never change from such form. That he would never grow ugly or the ugliness of age would not happen to him, but rather to this portrait of him. And his wish comes true. And throughout the story, as Dorian grows in age, so does the picture, but he doesn't change. The picture not only grows older, though, but it takes on the, the ugliness of his character. So while he remains the same youthful and handsome and innocent-looking, actually the portrait takes on all the ugliness of his character. And then towards the end of the story, particularly as his kind of character kind of flows out, in, in tremendous acts of, of evil, he comes face to face with the portrait. 
And overwhelmed by the ugliness, he seeks to destroy the painting. And I won't tell you the end of the story, but do go see it down the road. But it's interesting because these words in Titus, in very stark terms, paint a portrait of ourselves outside of God. Foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved. Titus presents us not as our best selves, but as our actual selves, with no filter, but it seems to be zoomed in on our faults and our blemishes, showing us the dark recesses of our own hearts. Now, I certainly am self-deluded often, thinking that I am probably better than I am, but there is those moments, the kind of, you know, late at night when you reflect upon your own character, your own actions, that you get a sense of your own brokenness, perhaps, or your own, as you reflect on perhaps conversations you've had, thoughts you've had, actions you did, and you are overwhelmed by the sense of your own brokenness and deceit. Well, Titus wants to give us a picture of this portrait, but it doesn't do so to bring us down, to keep us low, It does it to bring us up. It does it so that we would grasp something truly wonderful. For unless we grasp the state that our hearts are in, we won't get the nature of God's grace as it's extended to us. And in verse 3 to 7 of Titus, we get a picture of what it wants to lift our eyes to. It says, But when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ. The Christian message of grace tells us that we have got ourselves into a mess that we can't get ourselves out of. But it tells us that God can. God, Father, Son and Spirit brought salvation through the coming of his son to take the penalty in our place for all our brokenness and our sin. And we'll consider what he achieved first, but we need to first ask why. Why did he do this? Well, we get the picture of that in verse 4. It tells us in a few brief words, it says, because of God's love and kindness. The Bible tells us that God, Father, Son and Spirit has no need outside himself. He does not need communion with humanity or with us to fill some gap or to meet some need. No, the source of God's work in reconciling us to himself, in extending grace to us, is because he is loving and kind. It stems from his character. And so we might not be used to seeing this ugly portrait, but Titus helpfully draws our attention to it. But again, it's not to bring us down and to leave us there, but rather to lift our gaze to see both the loving kindness of God and the extension of his grace in the appearing of his son. Well, what are the effects of his grace? This is the second point, and the next ones are shorter. Well, in our first week, we saw that grace appeared Uh, This is speaking of Jesus coming into our world. God the Son comes into our world, the historical appearance of Christ, to communicate to us grace in the gospel. 
In chapter 2, verse 14, the verse we're going to focus on, it says, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. It describes Jesus' work for us or the effects of his grace in two ways, two pictures which are laden in the Old Testament. That is, redemption and purification. See, in the Old Testament, we get this picture of redemption. Redemption simply means release or freedom or regaining possession of something. And it's usually used, particularly in the Old Testament, around the language of slavery. And in the Old Testament, God's people, the Israelites, were enslaved by a cruel tyrant in Egypt called Pharaoh. They had no power within themselves to free themselves from this cruel master. They needed someone outside of themselves who could. And we see that God, in the Old Testament story, he liberates the Israelites through powerful acts to make him a people of his very own. In Exodus 19, he says to be his own treasured possession. But he doesn't just set them free from something, from this tyrant. He sets them free for something. They are to be his redeemed people who live lives of obedience and flourishing and joy in him. It's a picture we get in the rest of the Pentateuch. But what we see in the Bible as well, and particularly in this story of the Exodus, and I don't know if you've noted this in, in, in somewhat your experience in real life, often if we are overwhelmed by something or enslaved to something, we might find release from it, but only to find ourselves enslaved to something else. And that's the picture we get with the people of Israel. So they were freed from slavery to Pharaoh, and yet very shortly after there's this incident in the Old Testament where they falsely worship a golden calf. And so immediately you see that they are enslaved by something else. And that's something else the Bible describes as, as sin. There is sin that has enslaved them and it requires someone outside of them to release them from this greater tyrant. And it's a picture forward to Christ's work. And so when these verses speak about Jesus who gave himself, that is, gave himself literally over to death on the cross, he did so to redeem us from all unwickedness, that is, to release us from the threat of slavery to sin. Jesus' self-offering saves us from sin's penalty. But we see also that it sets us free from the power of sin as well. See, the other language it uses is the language of purification. Purification in the Old Testament is about cleansing. It's about uh, particularly the practices of ritual worship and the necessity of God's people to be clean before the Lord and, and God cleansing his people from their sin. And that language is picked up also in the prophet Ezekiel, which was read for us. It's the language of God actually cleansing a people, although they have been defiled through ignoring him and acting in their wickedness, God has promised a new exodus, not only dealing with the penalty of sin, but the power of sin, and cleanses his people, giving them a new heart so that they can follow his ways. And so in this sense, Christ 
has come to give himself for us. He lays down his life so that we are redeemed from the penalty of sin, so that we can have communion with God, but also to sin's power, so that we can live lives that are transformed. Grace transforms, it redeems and purifies, it releases and cleanses. And that's why we saw in verse 12 two weeks ago that we can say no to vice and yes to virtue, no to ungodliness and worldliness, and yes to self-control and lives seeking to love God and to love others. Grace transforms us to be eager to do what is good. Well, as we think about how this applies to us now, there's two signposts in this passage which helps us, and they both speak of grace's appearing, or the appearing of Jesus. The first is in verse 11, where we see the appearance of God's grace in Jesus' coming, and the second is the appearance of Jesus' coming in glory. So Jesus' coming through his death and resurrection has brought us life. It's a starting point, and then Jesus will come again we are told. And so we live between these two signposts. And in that time, we are to put off certain behaviours which are associated with the past and to put on new virtues following Jesus, his will and way, to live as his purified people, loving God and loving others. But what is the encouragement that we can get in this season as we wait for that time? How can we sustain ourselves? And this is where I want to close this evening. Because grace is not merely a gift of salvation, an undeserved gift bringing us life with God. It also, we have seen, transforms us so that we become more like his son, putting off certain past ways of living and living under God and his will and his way. Now, we wait patiently for it, but God also provides us with means of grace to sustain us on the way. Means of grace is the language of the reformers, uh, which speaks about spiritual practices which have been commanded to us in Scripture, things like reading the Bible, meeting together as God's people, singing songs, sharing in the sacraments, the meal that God has left us, as ways of spiritually encouraging us and sustaining us on the way. And Paul in Ephesians, which is another letter, like in Titus 3, draws on this language. He says, the Lord Jesus Christ says, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He says, be very careful how you live then, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity and understand what the Lord's will is. And then it says, Do not get drunk on wine to lead, that leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In a similar way, Paul is drawing a distinction, just like in Titus, they once were like this, and now in Christ, and because of what he's done, they are to be like this. So Paul describes them here as once in the darkness, and now they are in the light, and so they are to live awake as those in the light. And the ways in which he calls them to live and to sustain them in this journey to walk faithfully is to 
do the Lord's will, to be wise. And God's will is, is shown to us through his word, but it also commands us to do other things, to sing, to speak God's word to one another, to let the word of God dwell amongst us richly, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. These are the things which make us wise to follow Jesus on the way. They shape our imaginations to know how we can live lives pleasing to him, loving him and loving others. This is how our moral imagination, in one sense, is cultivated through these formative rhythms, singing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude, rhythms of grace or means of grace, as the reformers called them. This is how God comforts, strengthens and sustains and forms us. This is how the body is built up to maturity, zealous to do good works. And so when we gather, what do we do? We lift our eyes to see the loving kindness of God and to fill us with wonder. We press home the wonder of the free gift of God's grace in Jesus, which brings for us that sense of unburdening, of comfort and restoration. We hear his word and we, we pray that by the Spirit we will be formed into the kinds of people who live self-giving lives in service to God and in love of one another. And we go in peace to love and serve the Lord as we await his coming. And so as a final encouragement, how great is our God in his loving kindness to us? How amazing is his grace that in Christ we are extended a gift that we did not deserve. And how amazing is it that this grace transforms us, but it also sustains us through simple, ordinary means, which we rehearse to warm our hearts with weekly as we meet together. So let's not, not neglect the means that God has given to us to sustain us on the way. And we're going to close today by partaking in the meal that Jesus left to feed us spiritually on the way. A meal which binds us to the story of the gospel, our union with Jesus, binds us to one another, our unity in him also, and feeds us, nourishes us spiritually by faith as we await the great feast in the new heavens and the new earth. Let me close with these words of blessing. Lord, bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.